I'm Charlie Taylor. I'm Ben Carter. I run hip hop by the numbers on Twitter and Instagram, where you use hip hop statistics to highlight the bigger picture. I'm Dread to the Fifth Element, highlight the fifth element of hip hop. It's knowledge. We're taking in the digits. We're taking in the digits. Yes. Yes, we're taking in the digits. We're taking in the digits. the note there you hit it i'm about to talk about what my favorite album is <laughs> and this is why i love it I in the words of uh, patrice Evra, i love this game hi ben how's your week been what's been this week uh yeah week's been all right week's been all right just uh prepping up for christmas um this week man two albums only two albums absol and little sims um so very different albums but similar in a lot of ways which is really quite weird you know you wouldn't expect to be saying Lil Sims and Absol but Herbert came out on Friday uh, I saw someone criticizing the title lame title like that's his name bro <laughs> just, <laughs> just take a step back and I asked I asked him what their name was and they didn't reply so I don't know maybe their name was Bruce or something and they didn't want to they didn't want to expose himself Keith Keith Lance Lance, Lance is a kind of cool name, actually. Lance, Lance yeah. is cool. Lance was made cool on GTA. Lance, man. That's yeah, true. Um, Lance is cool. Lance yeah, Herb, Herbert's a great album. Herbert's a really deep album. It's, a, it's an impactful album. When I first listened to it on Friday, the first, when it, it dropped, and like I didn't do anything else. I just listened straight to that while I was doing the new release graphic. It didn't really pull me in. It didn't really strike me because, you know, Do All Thou Wilt, his last album, which came out in 2016, which was like 2,200 days ago, which is a long fucking time ago, very very deep album very intense album very layered album uh, it took a very long time you know to to break down to think about to mull over herbert was not that at all it was quite simple you know he's quite frank quite objective he, you know he's just telling it like it is and it wasn't until that night that i put it on when i was just sitting down to rest and i listened to it without any distractions whatsoever in the headphones it's a stunning album it's a really stunning album. Absol is telling us what the fuck happened. You know, even more so, I feel like than Isaiah Shadow. I feel like with uh, the house is burning, we were kind of expecting to hear, uh, you know, an intricate retelling of what had happened to Zay over the past five years. But we got that a little bit. But we also got, and you know, I love the house is burning so much. I put it on all the time. It's a brilliant fucking album. Very underrated. This is different, man. This is not an album that I'm going to be going back to regularly because very deep very painful at one point uh absol admits to uh actually attempting suicide and not succeeding and bro when i heard that i almost started crying it just floored the shit out of me and we haven't heard this from absol like with with zay we heard in that interview that he did and he talked about all the things that he'd been through and the depths that he, he'd plunged absol hasn't been that open about it until this record and I guess a lot of us didn't really know what was going on. You know, a lot of people were saying, like, what's happening with Absol? Where is he? Is he okay? A lot of people were saying, I hope he's okay. And then other people would respond, like, what do you mean, hope he's okay? Like, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just chilling. But this was, uh, yeah, he really opened up on this record. And there's some great punchlines on here. Just typical Absol great rapping. But I feel like he didn't, he didn't let the... 
the occasion overwhelm him in any in any sense. He didn't try to make something absolutely epic. He didn't try to make a Mr. Morale. You know, he didn't try and like make a dam or something crazy like that. Same with the house is burning. You know, they didn't try and do something crazy either. Absol just created something that was, you know, I, I thought we were going to get something that was just going to be like a touch point every year since we got an album. Like he was going to try and sum up the entire period. But he didn't do that. He told us how he's feeling right now and why he got there and how he got there. And that's brilliant, man. It's such a brilliant fucking album. Uh, I think it might not connect with a lot of people. I'm not sure. I haven't really been seeing a lot of people talking about it. Uh, obviously, when it dropped, people were like, oh my God, Absol's back. But I haven't seen a lot of... And again, I haven't been on Twitter that much. So maybe people are talking about it like crazy and gassing it up. But... Man, shout out Absol, like, very brave, very vulnerable on this record, and uh, this is just a beautiful piece of music, and I'm, as I said, I'm probably not going to go back to it heaps, because it, it affected me a lot, and when I was listening to it on Friday night, I was in a dark space, and I've been in a dark space for a couple of months now, and it really soothed me in a, in a powerful way, and I don't want that for Absol, I don't want him to have to soothe me when I'm struggling like that, you know, I hope he's okay now, um... And I don't want to be soothed all the time. Like, you know, I want to be in a more positive frame of mind at some point in the future. And I don't think I'll come back here. But when I do, you know, this album's going to be waiting for me. And, and I appreciate that. So, yeah, brilliant. I'm totally worth the wait. Um, yeah, man, I just hope Absol's okay. And Lil Sims, uh, we listened to it yesterday while I was working out. It's fucking brilliant. It's so brilliant. I, I came up with this stat because I was, I was listening to it. There was so many outros. And 33.3% of the album is just intros and outros. That's a third of the album. There's a couple on there that go for like a minute, two minutes, two and a half minutes, like really, really long outros. Inflow laced her up. And what they're doing at the moment, Inflow and Lil Sims, is they're just creating this uh, this relationship with each other where it's almost like the Little Sims sound now. It's like these bombastic horns, these like real triumphant horn sections. But... The beats are so simple and stark and like spacious. It gives Little Sims' voice a chance to just fill all in that space. It's almost like you're getting like the triumphant horns and it's like really like egging you up and getting you excited and like, are we gonna get like freedom by Beyonce or something crazy here? Like it sound like Just Blaze and then the beat just kind of drops away. And then you've got like a real, real bare bones beat with Lil Sims just rapping her fucking ass off. And you know, she's talking about some really intense topics here. She's talking about all the stuff that's happening with, with labels and the hip hop industry and why people are making music and how she feels about it. And yeah, I felt like it was almost like her just sitting us down and having a conversation with us, especially after sometimes I might be introvert. I'm not going to call her Simbi anymore because she says on the album, like, if you don't know me that well, don't call me Simbi. I'm like, oh shit, I'm going to stop calling you Simbi. I'm sorry. But like, nah, man, bring, bring fucking album. I, I think it's very difficult to follow up an album like Simbi. And she did it because she didn't try to best it. She didn't try to, to top it. She didn't try to match it. She said, you know what? I'm a fucking adept mc i'm an incredible mc i'm just gonna wrap my ass off here and um yeah shout out to her and inflow because this is a this is a great project and this is definitely one i'm going to go back to over and over again i can feel that already i've listened to it two or three times now um oh man great great fucking album shout out little sims that was me charlie about yourself well as you can imagine i also listen to little sims, sims. <laughs>
So a couple of ca- a couple of not counterpoints, but just addition addendums to your points. Um, I hesitate to think if it's like Sims is sound because this is very very reminiscent of just all of the salt projects and obviously in flows leadership leader in leading leading on that and also the fact that this is uh released under his label as well gives me more impetus to say that um so i don't know if i would class it as sims is sound now it's definitely Mm -hmm. inflow sound Mm -hmm. but sims is just constantly on there and obviously they've been working together for years so Sure, you can you can say, you can say that you're not you're not wrong, but it might yeah, be similar to the whole Hip Boy Nas thing, where you wouldn't say that that's Nas's yeah. sound, but they've locked into yeah. a you know they've got yeah. some sort of relationship Possibly. now that when they create, you know where it's where it's gonna go, you know. As as someone that's been a you know fan of Sims since, I mean officially since uh, a few weeks before Stillness in Wonderland, but you know I've listened to her old, old older work, you know. Uh, several times and that work is very different towards to what it is now you mm. could have said her sound back in the day was just like this spacey uh spacey affair uh sometimes just supremely hip-hop um she went different levels with it she worked with mick jenkins on one particular track and that was pretty that was pretty good and that reminds me of uh, some some other stuff so she went she went uh, another place uh, other places um a nomad in that sense right but a lot of the tracks had this space element she you know constantly referenced it um so coming back to this and coming back to where she's at now in her album cycle um actually fantana made an interesting point um where he kind of classed this as like in the same way gray area came pretty quickly after well, not pretty quickly, relatively quickly, after, you know, Stillness in Wonderland, which obviously Stillness in Wonderland is a concept album, Simbi is a concept album, but Grey Area and No Thank You are kind of these, like, care packages in the best way, I guess, if you, if you want to class it as that, um, but not intensive, right, um, for, for, for her to, it, it seems like, from, from, how, from how, where I stand, it, it seems like, this was just done over the salt recording sessions where obviously they dropped five technically six albums this year and sims was just there right and you know and then she's just like i like that let me can i can i have that something like that you know what i mean just something of that nature where she was just in the room and just barring right um there's no concept here in some way right uh, some would say it's like an epilogue to simbi yeah. which you know you can make an argument yeah. for it does feel a um, bit like that yeah it yeah, it does feel a bit like that. Um but yeah, um past that it's um it's an interesting piece of work to have this she the the way she does it is kind of like in this you know, it's kinda of like a free flowing um every every uh conversation is brought up. Um, some she brought up during Simbi, some she's brought up in past years, um, and she just uh, comes at it with a fresh light every time. And yeah, this is an outstanding album to read, especially from a lyrical standpoint. The short film that goes with it is outstanding. Um, my personal favorite is Heart on Fire, and 
the the, the and and it's and it makes sense for me to me that the short film ends on that track because um her 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 diary entry so to speak on on like fame and and how that changes her life is so interesting like her talking about artists like sims talking about fame is so fascinating to me and notoriety you know um reminds me of like that uh when uh you know when dave Chappelle went, went came came back from africa and went on that op and went on oprah that one time and he was talking about you know why he left um and that was like the first did thing he does like the first thing he did uh you know um in, on on tv after all of that and he was explaining fame and how he saw the Chappelle show and it was fascinating right and people that talk about fame in this in this light in this very introspective light and you know it's so fascinating to me i love that track to death um but yeah like you said it's a very outro heavy which um might put off some people you know i've been put off by some albums that have you know dumb long outros um you know that was a thing back in the day but now it isn't really so she's she she could be such a throwback sometimes and it's and it's so great um but yeah man i have a there's just some preliminary thoughts, man. Like I'm, I need to, I, I need to decide a where I'm gonna put this on my album list, <laughs> and b what the fuck I'm gonna write about because there's just so much to eat here. Um, and the fact that it can't come, it comes from her in this relatively quick fashion and with not much thought behind it. Simbi and Stillness in Wonderland have thought behind it. Gray area. This do not. And it's crazy how that works to me. It's crazy how she just comes at boom with just some heat um, and just lets the pen bleed. She literally lets the pen bleed to quote Ernest Hemingway. I think he said it. But anyway, I had other stuff I listened to. Um, uh, Ayama, 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 uh, Sometimes I'm Speechless, um, came right at the death um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking with it heavy. She kind of has this vocals in very similar to Ari Lennox, very very similar, um, especially when she does some vocal stacking on a couple of tracks. It's very it's it's kind of uncanny, um, but past that, it's not like Ari Lennox at all. Um, she has this R and B hip hop hybrid, um, but even with that said, she does have a couple of acoustical numbers here, um, and uh, yeah, she's just an outstanding uh, songwriter. Um, uh, I think there's one track. Uh, I think I forgot what it's called now. <laughs> I've literally been, uh, I've literally been uh, looking over shit for the past week, and uh, no, I can't remember anything. Um, but yeah, she has one track where she's kind of like lamenting on a, uh, on a uh, the industry, and that was a very fascinating uh, minute of uh, songwriting. Uh, but yeah, man, she has some great stuff, really good stuff. I'm glad I discovered her so late in the game. Uh, Lyric Michelle Muse. Um, uh, she has this very esoteric way about her uh aesthetically and just how she raps um she doesn't um she she's she's very clearly intent on not being boxed in you know and uh she goes all over the place with it um so you know kind of a 20 minute ish ep if i remember correctly um have a good up with me but um, it's some very esoteric stuff um but she's kind of like rapping over rapping over beats you've heard of before some classic beats um so you know they're mostly freestyles right um in in that sense uh but regardless of that you can you can you can get something out of that for sure um so shout out to michelle uh lizzie birchy uh, under the sun again one uh really great vo uh, voice on her on this one 
really great voice um loving this discovery right here uh definitely one of the best uk r&b artists coming out right now in the groundswell that we have right now fucking oh, so many um but yeah lizzie birch can literally in my mind go wherever she wants after this um yeah she she can go down the proper singing route she can go down the melodic route but wherever she goes she's gonna dub it because um she can literally do it all and, and it kind of shows on this ep that she does a little bit of everything similar to ayama but in a, in a different sense um but yeah man she got the keys she got the fucking keys and uh lastly venocio uh awa um i have no idea how i discovered this dude i i can't for the I can't for the life of me remember how i found him um but he just popped his album just popped up from my spotify feed and i was like all right then cool um so he's a, a latin american i forgot if it was brazilian or argentinian um that and that's a that's a major l on my side um but yeah uh, definitely not latin american and uh, it's kind of, it's actually a live album um and um I really love the fact there's a live album on this one. Um, some really good stuff all over here. Great energy. Um, you get some crowd participation within, but it's so well recorded. You, you I'm surprised it is a live recording because live recordings don't hit this good. Um, this is a clean recording. Um, whoever hooked up the sound on this one, uh, shouts to you guys because fuck. <laughs> usually, live rec- usually you can gather a live recording, right? Um, there's just a certain something missing there from you know compared to doing it all in the studio um but this just works it's every instrument hits it's tasty creamy love it shout out to Vinocio. um but yeah we shall finish that um and help on to hip-hop neighbors the real hnn <laughs> hhn <laughs> it's right behind you bro imposter <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is uh, volume five, and uh, we're getting into an album and a song. Actually, um, Ben's uh, ripping up the rule book a little bit, um, but there's still some there's, there's some there's some good stuff to talk about, um, especially with the song. And uh, since I mentioned it, uh, we'll hop on. To, we'll start with yours um, because I I I just I've I've have, a, I have, a, I have a, I'm irked by this <laughs> by this whole. I'm hooked by this song. It really irks me. <laughs> I tell you what, we're gonna get into exactly why it irks you right at the end. But yeah, it fucking irks me. I get it. This is very interesting. Mm, very, very interesting. So we're gonna talk about Rapture by Blondie, released in 1980. Uh, obviously, the first ever rap song to go number one. Like in inverted commas, we're gonna talk about it. But anyway. 1980, the band Blondie was already a household name, largely thanks to Heart of Glass, one of their incredible early singles, a song that dropped a year prior and just went super fire. Number one on the Hot 100, um, you know, Blondie had crossed over here, number one in Australia, Austria, Canada, US, New Zealand, Switzerland, UK, West Germany, uh, top 10 in another seven countries, that song. Now, Deborah Harry, the lead singer of Blondie and the rapper in, uh, in inverted commas in this, Claims that Heart of Glass and Rapture are the two songs she's most proud to have written. And Blondie have hits on hits on hits on hits on hits. Hits on hits. We're going to talk about some of them. Heart of Glass helped push their 1978 album Parallel Lines to platinum status in six different countries. Uh, And it's a brilliant album. You know, it's one of the defining records of the 70s. A decade in which all the genres were pushing into new, often not so fertile ground. And Parallel Lines remains the high watermark for the group. You know, and a high watermark for pop rock in general. Now, Rapture isn't an overly surprising song within this because, you know, despite how stark it now appears with the benefit of historical hindsight, 
Blondie, despite setting the tone for pop rock in the late 70s, was hardly a generic chart-chasing group. You know, they began as a punk band in the mid-70s, but they evolved, uh, sorry, evolved to incorporate disco, pop, new wave, reggae, electro, you know, all these different genres in their music. But how did a punk rocker from New Jersey become the first rapper in history to top the US singles chart? Now, you might remember from our Artifacts episode where I spoke about Sylvia Robinson and her husband founding Sugar Hill Records in New Jersey in the late 70s. Now, if you read a retrospective on Rapture and it doesn't match, mention Fab Five Freddy, then just disregard it, click out of it immediately because Fab Five Freddy is absolutely essential in this story. Now, in an interview with Grand Life, they asked him about the collaboration. He said he met De- Deborah Harry and Chris Stein, the founding members of Blondie, via public access so- show TV Party, which was put on by Glenn O'Brien in the late 70s. Now, Fab Five Freddy was involved heavily with that show, and he told Grand Life that it was a beacon for fascinating people, you know, David Bowie, Nile Rogers, George Clinton, and of course, Blondie, whom he described, Fab Five Freddy described as key parts of the underground scene. I don't know what underground he was talking about because they were going like platinum in 12 different countries. But anyway, Fab Five Freddy invited Harry and Stein to a party in the Bronx in 1977 or 1978. Chris, Chris, Chris Stein can't remember which year. But it featured a bunch of rappers performing live and the energy and message enthralled the two punk rockers. Now, Chris Stein told Sing for Science in 2022, he said... It was just super exciting and eye-opening to see all this going on at the same time as the downtown music scene, but there was really no connection between these two scenes at this point. We'd heard Rapper's Delight on the radio, so I had a basic conception of it, but seeing it in person was really eye-opening. Now, this was a relatively exclusive party. You know, this wasn't just random people just jumping up on the mic. Uh, Blondie were treated to performances from Grandmaster Flash, the Cold Crush Brothers, and Funky 4 Plus 1. So, you know, this was pretty high-end shit. Now, the energy of this performance, the socio-political messages, the power of these artists speaking of their struggles musically, inspired the duo to write Rapture, and the sister song, Yuletide Throwdown, which is actually another rap song that they did, but it's just a sped-up version of Rapture that featured some lyrics from Fab Five Freddy. It was actually designed to be a Christmas song, but the label fumbled the bag and ended up releasing it in February for some reason. Now, it was long lost until recently, and the band re-released it on vinyl. So they do have two rap songs, Rapture and Yuletide Throwdown. Now, often, articles speaking about Rapture have paragraph headers like, Blondie famously gave a shout-out to Fab Five Freddy on their 1980 song Rapture. That one comes courtesy of Enemy, of course. Now, the truth of their collaboration is not that in any shape or form, okay? It's far more fascinating than that. If you read a headline like that, again, click out of the article. Do not read the article. It has no fucking idea what it's talking about. Now, Freddie told Grand Life about Rapture and his involvement. He said, Blondie making the song Rapture was a huge surprise to me as Debbie's rap included some of the ideas I'd explained to her and Chris about the scene. Like how Flash was the fastest DJ, how uptown at the parties, guys and girls were like fly guys and fly girls, uh, which is why the Everybody's Fly Debbie's rapping about. Later when they shot the music video, a lot of the key members in TV party crew are extras in that video. Like myself, uh, doing graffiti, uh, Lee, Lee Quinones doing graffiti paintings. Uh, Basquiat is in there. Basquiat is in the video, standing in for Flash at the turntables. Now when, it, and Freddie says, when it became number one song nationwide, it would prove to be a cultural game-changing moment, and I was proud to have lit that fuse. And we're gonna talk about that when we get to the end here. Now, lyrical content is typically left field. 
you know, Blondie were primarily a pop rock band by this point, but they were chameleons. You know, what you need to know about Blondie at this point is they were going where the sound was. It didn't really matter what they were. They were punk rockers. It didn't matter what they were. They were adept musicians, and they were just going to, yeah, I'm not going to say reappropriate sounds, but they were going to pull in whatever they could and then just do that. So the lyrical content sounds far more like David Bowie or Lou Reed than the Ramones. You know, it's like the whole, uh, you're the man from Mars, you go out at night eating cars, you eat Cadillacs, Lincolns too, Mercury's and Subaru's. Like, it's kind of catchy. I mean, it's kind of out there. It's very esoteric. It's just random. Like, And it's the best song on the album, by the way. I listened to Auto American. Bro, that album is, is like two or three semi-decent songs and the rest of it. I don't that know. can't be the best track. Bro, Auto American is them. It's it's the worst part of Blondie. It's them trying every fucking different sound in human existence and failing at ninety five percent of them. I adore Blondie. I adore them. But holy shit, That's the funny. tide is high. We're going to talk about that in a second as well. So, is it a rap song? Is it fair to say that Debbie Harry is the first rapper with a number one song? This is what she told Westchester Magazine. She says. We had the first number one. I put quotes around rap because it's not strictly or truly a rap song. It's an homage. We really love what was going on. We were at a street level at the time. We saw kids doing what they did and what it meant. And I feel like this is really important stuff. This is giving a voice to the kids. Up until then, the out- and this is still her words, up until then, the outlet for black musicians was R&B. So this was major. In a way, I felt that maybe I was taking advantage of a situation. It was a gamble. We had no idea that it would go to number one. I'm proud of the fact that we did the first rap song that had its own music. At that time, rapping was all done to loops. They would take loops from Chic and from this and that, and they would make scratches and do all that with the turntable. So it was a different animal. Now, Harry, Deborah Harry shirks away from calling it a hip hop song. She didn't actually say that it's not a rap song in that quote, by the way, because they did kind of ask her whether she considered it to be a rap song. And she put it in quotes, but then she didn't really explain that. But when she talks about hip hop, she says, you know, it's up for grabs, I think. It's probably the same idea that happened with punk music. There was a time when it was all labeled one thing, then it became a style, then it became something else. Punk became new wave. There are gray areas about it. Stuff really overlaps. I don't think there's ever a clear line of definition because there are always little references to music that has influenced you. In our songs, there are some references to R&B, there's some blues, reggae. Now, obviously that has, she has no understanding of what hip hop is at this point. Because hip-hop is not a grey area, it's very clearly defined, it is a culture, it's not a genre, and you can't just take a little bit of hip-hop and create a song that sounds a little bit like hip-hop and then call it a hip-hop song, there's no grey area there, this is not a hip-hop song in any way, shape or form. Now, the group obviously wasn't even sure they had a hit, their focus was on the woeful, woeful, tired is high one of the most overplayed, generic, useless pop songs in history because they took the single by the Paragons of the same name, which was already not the greatest song in existence. I mean, it came from their 1967 song On the Beach with the Paragons, uh, mostly known for the brilliant slow burner when the lights are low, but also home to like the warmth of so much pain, Yellow Bird, Mercy Mercy. It's a great album. The Tide is High was meant to be Blonde, Blondie's reggae crossover track. And it's just fucking bad, man. It's so bad. And they've said in interviews repeatedly that Rapture was a risk. And that makes sense because, you know, reggae was not a risk at the time. It was exploding in the US via Three Dog Night, Johnny Nash. You know, a lot of white people were doing it. Paul Simon was doing it. The Clash. Uh, a lot of punk acts were doing, like, adding reggae into their music. 
And Deborah Harry, of course, being a punk alumni, probably saw more utility in a reggae-inspired track. And to be honest, that song has probably endured more than Rapture's, despite its quality. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's a terrible song, but I think that just highlights what Blondie were doing. They weren't, they weren't saying like, let's focus in, laser focus in on hip hop and rap because we think this is something amazing. They were literally just grabbing whatever the fuck they could, whatever they they thought was popular, and putting it on this album. Now, one thing we're definitely going to discuss here is cultural appropriation because it's it's an inescapable accusation when you're white and popularizing something that isn't white. And rightfully so, of course, the fucking questions must be asked. And I've been down a bit of a Graceland rabbit hole rate recently, for example. Like, we've been listening to Paul Simon, that album on Wax, regularly these past few weeks. I've done a lot of reading on the background to that album with Paul Simon defying the apartheid band and going to South Africa and working with South African artists in the 80s and actually touring in South Africa too and all the criticism around that and all of the things that he said about that. Now, Blondie were heavily influenced by the Rolling Stones, and anyone who has read Keith Richards' book and is familiar with their story will know that they they didn't just flirt heavily with appropriation, they just straight out appropriated. They just straight out took music from black musicians and made it popular, and then just became a household name. Like, that's not up for debate at all. You know, we could talk about Zeppelin, and that might be a little bit more up for debate. I don't think Rolling Stones were quite as blatant with it as Elvis, but they were fucking right up there. You know, it was one and two, probably. Um, but like, it's easy to look back on all this with hindsight and say, maybe a real rapper should have had the first number one song of all time. It's very simple, right? Maybe a real rapper should have, but does that make Blondie complicit? And I think Paul Simon's words about Graceland to Rena Silverman are probably applicable here. He said, what was unusual about Graceland is that it was on the surface apolitical, but what it represented was the essence of the anti-apartheid in that it was a collaboration to make music that people everywhere enjoyed. It was completely the opposite from what apartheid regime had said, which is that one group of people were inferior. Here, there were no inferiors or superiors, just an acknowledgement of everybody's work as a musician. Now that in itself is wrong. That in itself, he doesn't understand that, and a lot of people criticize him for that statement because you can't have an equal collaboration between a black and a white artist when the white artist puts his name on it and then tours the world with it. And when everyone talks about Graceland, they're like, yeah, it's a Paul, it's Paul Simon. It's a great album. It's one of the greatest albums of all time made by Paul Simon. No one knows about the South African artists that helped create that album. So that just shows you right there that that is cultural appropriation. That's at, it, at its fucking core. I mean, you've taken someone else's sound, reappropriated it under your own name, and then gone on and made your name off that sound. That's, that's, is that not cultural appropriation? But did Deborah Harry and Chris Stein do enough to convey to listeners that they were celebrating a cultural moment that inspired and energized them? And I don't think they did, to be honest. I think that Paul Simon probably did a lot more with Graceland to justify what on the surface is some nasty behavior. I think Deborah Harry and Chris Stein were entirely of the time though, because the 70s was still an era in which traditionally black music was being swept up and repackaged by white artists in such a way that it would top the charts and make people money. And I don't think anyone saw it as that much of a problem in the mainstream back then. You know, you couldn't do that shit in 2022. There's no equivalent to it. There's no, there's no way for us to draw from our present or even past experience and apply it to 1977 when they first appeared at that Bronx party and were swept up in the energy. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to endorse it. I'm not going to sit here and say Blondie did the right thing. Uh, how, how fuck can I say that? I'm going to pull some quotes because I'm very curious to see how Fab Five Freddy... Cold Crush Brothers, uh, Funky 4 Plus 1 felt about it. Um, 
you know, like why, why did, how do they feel about it? How do they feel that the music and the, the, the culture that they were pouring their energy and time into was repackaged by two white pop artists and propelled to number one? Did they feel vindicated or inspired or empowered? Like, what did they feel? So Spin aired this ridiculous opening line in 2022. Hip hop as the world knows it likely wouldn't exist without the early contributions of pioneering DJ producer Grandmaster Flash. True. And we may not even know who Grandmaster Flash is without Debbie Harry. False. False, 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 false. Shut the fam, shut the fuck. And now that that was, Tim, that was in 2022. That was in 1977. The message? You'd say, this person never listened to the message? Shut. So anyway, Grandmaster Flash told Spin this. In the same interview, by the way, there was this young man who was one of my best friends, Fab Five Freddy, Grandmaster Flash, now 64, told us from the conference room in his Bronx studio. One day, Fab Five Freddy comes to one of my parties and says, yo, I got some friends downtown, Chris, Stein, and Blondie, and I'm going to bring them up to the jam in the Bronx. I'm looking at Freddy like, yeah, right. A couple of weeks go by. The majority of my audience was black people and Puerto Ricans. That's my audience. There was this lady that was in the room, blonde hair, and Freddie was standing next to her. When I looked at her, I told Freddie to come up on stage and bring that person with him. I thought, who's this? She walks up and she's like, my name is Deborah Harry, and I've been watching you for the last 20 minutes. Then she said, I'm going to write a song about you. Grandmaster Flash says this. So now, as opposed to me playing for my normal audience, now I have this white audience that was looking at me, getting into me and grooving with me. She played a major role in that part right there. I thank her to this day. I thank her to this day for her to, and and he continues, for her to even come into my world and want to hang with us and chill and be with us. And Chris Stein was simply amazing, he added. Now, Funky 4 Plus 1 were also very positive. They said in an interview with Old School Hip Hop from 2011, Fab Five Freddy used to come to jams in the park. And once we made the record, he would come to the shows every now and then. But he also used to hang out in the village with Charlie Ahern. I'm not sure who that is. My apologies. These... These guys, as you know, were producers of the movie Wildstyle. So Fab Five Freddy was around Blondie and them at that time. When their record Rapture became a hit, we got a chance to go on Saturday Night Live. Now Rodney C goes on to say that because Shah Rock was such a heavily heavy influence on Deborah Harry, she was adamant that they join her as the musical guest on SNL, and they became the first hip hop group ever to perform live on national television because of this. You know, so the people that she took from were very, very thankful that it happened. So, you know, I'm as I say, I'm not going to be the arbiter here. I, I can't be the arbiter of any of this shit. I'm a fucking white kid from Sydney, so it's got nothing to do with me. But, you know, I find it, I find it it's super nasty looking back in time. But, you know, the people who were involved in it at the time don't think it's nasty at all. So, yeah, interested to see how you feel about this one, Charlie. <sighs> that was fatiguing. <laughs> That's the perfect word. I was That's so fatiguing. Word for it. I was so Look, fatiguing. I was. Just, I wanted I was to get to the like, bottom of this, bro. I was just like thought, 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 thought. I wanted to get. To, I wanted to get thought. to the bottom of this because you know I just wanted to to lay it all out there and see what people think. That's great. That's good. I feel um you know I feel like this is a story that you know while it has been accounted for you know decades upon decades, I still feel it's always a good flashpoint to talk about when it comes to hip hop history um because i mean i mean you laid you laid that land pretty freaking well um i feel you know this doesn't happen anywhere else 
part of America. <laughs> this is such an American fucking thing. It's great. The whole thing just screams America. Um, fun fact, um, before I continue. So Charlie Hearn was um, the writer, director, producer of Wild Style. Um, so obviously regarded as the you know first hip hop motion picture. Eight nineteen eighty three includes Fat Five Freddy and uh, Rocksteady Crew, Cold Crush, etc. etc. If you've seen it, you've seen it. If you haven't, you haven't. Guess who did the music? Chris Stein. Oh God, <laughs> Chris Stein did the music for Wild Style. <laughs> Jesus Christ! You can't fucking write. Yeah? It's great. Man. It's so poetic. That was. That, I, I looked up on Wikipedia. I was just like, I've heard Charlie Hearn. I've heard his name. I was just like, let me look at it right quick. And I look up Wild Style, and I was like. No fucking way he did the music. That's just fucking outstanding. That's great. The uh, the motion picture for hip-hop, the music was done by Chris Stein. Uh, outstanding. Just, I just love that. That's that's so great. Right. Um, let me start macro a bit because um, you mentioned, you know, other art forms. And uh, you obviously mentioned reggae and how that was used. I'm so fucking glad that shit's been... Uh, kept in the kept out of kept in that uh, kept in uh when it was released and not kept wasn't there now, some white I, I reggae artist that. that won a fucking grammy oh. like a couple of years ago yeah well but here's here's the thing here's the thing like <clears throat> i i'm not too beefed about i forgot what group they are but i'm not too beefed um because you know i've recently learned in recent years in the past months actually that you know there's there's Japanese dub reggae artists, bro. There's I I I went to see the Avatar two with my pops the other day. What was on the radio? He was putting on, he put on a, a um a David Rodigan, um very highly noted uh a DJ British DJ, but his whole career has been just all about reggae, and he's been uplifting reggae in the UK. He's white, by the way, for the past you know since reggae's become a thing here, so. He's a staple in this, right? Um, I'm not beefing David Rodigan. <laughs> like, you know, he's there's some white people in these places that you know are are good faith about it, and they're about and they are about it, right? Um, you know, there's plenty of white guys in hip hop that um, are about it. Um, some are questionable, but you know, that's for another day. So, you know, um, and you know, there's reggae artists in. UK that were white, uh, I mean the specials for example, they were white and black and that was kind of their USP in some ways of how connected they were um, but you know, it, it, it differs, right but when it comes to America and how it's done there, it just doesn't come off as good faith at all, um, you know, obviously you mentioned the Rolling Stones um, didn't the Beatles bring on like a black uh, a black group at some point they brought a, uh, they were inspired by and all the white people were just like who are these people it's just like these are the people we've basically built our careers on <laughs> like these are the sh these are the shoulders we're standing on right and obviously that goes by the wayside because you know mainstream uh audiences don't care about that. don't care don't care about history and background and stuff like that they don't they don't really don't care about that so when it comes to this, when it comes to Rapture, which I will say is just, oh god, the, the bars just are so 
weak. <laughs> it's so weak. But, you know, I'm, I'm, that's, that's beside the point. That's kind of minuscule. But I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> it's, just, it's not great, is it? Um, but, you know, even when I said it's barely hip-hop, like, you know, you said New Wave, got a bit of disco in there. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not completely even hip-hop, right? And all of this comes stems down, for me, um, to how it's mentioned you know first rapper <laughs> don't do that don't let's not do that let's not play that game please let's not she's not a rapper it's it's you know is james brown we've a rapper been, we've been through this man post is not a rapper is is james brown when a rapper <laughs> i don't think people consider him one but he spat bars like, Ed Sheeran he, he, spits bars, go go spin we can all rap ed sheeran all, spits well, bars. i can't rap but not a rapper okay rap. Exactly, like you know, stringing. How how fast do they need to rap? You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of songwriters that rhyme their words, but are they rapping? It's you know, it's obviously a very arbitrary line there. It's very grey. Um, so you know, just let's just not consider debut rapper, please. Let's just not take that off headlines and take that off. Wikipedia the Renettes. The Renettes was um, who the Beatles uh, brought out, by the way. The Ronettes, that was it. Thank you. They were the opening much. act of the their last American um, tour. That's it. There you go. Thank you very much. I knew I was, I was, I was uh, thinking of someone there, um, and that's why that's why I remembered it because I think someone mentioned it when um, the leader of Ronettes died uh, this year. Um, but yeah, literally on Google, bro, is Blondie Rapture the first rap song? What are we doing? The first rap song. What are we song. doing here? What, the what, first what? ever rap. Hip hop yeah. was created <laughs> by a white punk rocker from New Jersey. Uh, what are we doing? What? This is it. This is the shit we. Ha- this is literally the the pet the the wall we have to break down here. Um, and you know, I'm not saying I, I don't know why that's come up on Google, but that says a lot to me. <laughs> that says a lot to me. Um, because guys. Rapping has existed for hundreds of years. Just want to newsflash you there. It's just, it's just, it's, it's existed for hundreds of years, believe it or not. Um, so yeah, I, I, and the and on the appropriation front, um, I don't. I mean, you know, I'm not the be all and end all. This is my opinion, of course. So you know, believe what you want. Disagree with me if you want. I don't care. It's your, it's your opinion. Um, but. I there's it's kind of like a half and half to this, like it's not outright appropriation, because at least she knew a couple of people, right? At least she told them, you know. And you know, if Grandmaster Flash appreciates it, if you like it, I love it, right? <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go against Flash, um. But is I guess the. And, and you know, I don't know the relationships between Freddie and Debbie and the others, right? It, se- it seemed reasonably tight, even considering the fact that Stein did the fucking music for Wildstyle, which is forever going to make me sad <laughs> just thinking about um, of have they all them artists, all the artists in, in, around, in and around the Wildstyle universe, and they got him to do it. It just doesn't make sense. Anyway, um, you know, so appropriation, I mean... You, you can you can make the case um i i feel at least she at least she at least she ingratiated herself it or um you know at least she put herself into the world a bit 
and wasn't just for like one party. Oh, what's this rapper's for one delight? Party, bro. Like yeah. it's not like I she mean, was not like she was hanging out several, at fucking know. in the Bronx every. Yeah. I mean, that's the story, bro. That's the story. You know, we we condense we condense stories to make them sound you know mystical. You know what I mean? So. It might have been. They might have partied together it for five years. Bro. I, I, I've listened to the podcast, man. It was they. They. They knew Fab Five Freddy, and they went to this show, and they were infected by the energy and the fire and the passion, and then they decided that night to write a song about it. Like they weren't there. You know, they weren't part. They weren't of the culture. Like they were never of the culture. Oh no, 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 no! Stop, stop! What I'm saying. That's what, that's what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm it's saying, not, they, to be they, fair, they, it's as nasty they, as it sounds. Yeah, like they, it sounds like they went to one okay, party, yeah, yeah. they loved the rap, and they were like, you know what? We've got a reggae song. Why not do a rap song? Like <laughs> that's as, as far as the thought process went. You know? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll take. I'll take that. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, I think you mentioned the quote from her, which was kind of like hit and miss. Like she was saying some good things, some nasty shit. Took yeah. it back. Oh. Uh, and then she just went like complete the other way. I'm just like, oh, you killed it, you ruined it. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I get, I guess it, I guess it is right, but um, I, I don't, I don't. The the issue, the overriding issue for me is always just like this is always going to be one of like I said, the flashpoint in hip hop history where this conversation has to be concretely made and made aware constantly because. Uh, you know, just <laughs> uh, and obviously the the fact of music videos being so prevalent at that point, I think did a lot. Um, if they didn't drop a video for this, I don't think it would have gotten the gas that it did. Um, it would have just been another record. Um, but I think the video did carried a lot of weight here. Uh, I would make that claim. Uh, but yeah, man, just fuck this song over <laughs> like this. The song sucks overall in general, but um, and you know the story sounds, I mean, like I was kind of like defended a little bit. Um, sounds mystical, but you can be very cynical about it, and that's probably the right way to go about it. Um, as I've been life thinking about this because um, yeah, I just I kind of in the past years just refused to actually take this conversation on, and it's just. I've just zoomed out of it and just going, okay, so let's have the conversation about, you know, why people doing this shit. Like, let's let's have the overall conversation, you know what I mean? Um, This is just an example of a lot of, of a lot of examples. Um, And obviously this is the major hip hop one. Um, But yeah, I don't know. Again, this this whole thing fatigues me. (laughs) It just, it really does. It just fatigues the fuck out of me. Um. Yeah, it's, yeah. We boo sucks. you. We boo you, Blondie. Boo, boo. boo thumbs my, down. My, thumbs my, down. My, thumbs my, down. My, now my, let's move my, on to some my, thumbs my. up. Soul to soul. So we got some jams. We got some fucking jams, right? So I wanted to talk about uh the classic Soul to Soul album, Club Classics Volume One, or Keep on Moving in the US. Um, so there's different ways of uh, tackling this. Um, as an album, it's had different iterations. Um, so, you know, 
talk. Well, I'll, I'm going to talk about it in just uh, the in the in how it's done in the track list. There's also a 10th anniversary version, which has the more classic version of Back to Life, which I was which I was singing at the beginning. Um, but the Neo G album, it was kind of just done a cappella uh, for most of it, and you know it's a great song in its own right. But obviously, the classic is the original. Well, not the original. The what do you want to call it? The redone back to life i don't know how to how to word it um but it's part of the 10th, 10th anniversary edition anyway so um tackle that if you want um but yeah i want to i've talked about this album before in passing um in different conversations uh but this is one i wanted to bring to this particular episode um or this mini this whatever series uh, uh hip hop neighbors series because of just a lot of the uh roots it lays down and I feel like this is what Blondie should have done, right? And the other artists, other white artists should do, right? Um, where Club Classics Volume 1 came out at a very interesting time. Uh, 19, 1989, right? So um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of flavours around that time. A lot of flavours. And a lot of them you get here. Um you get some rapping, you get some soul music, you get some R&B, you get some hip-hop, you get some dance music. There's a lot of flavours here to, 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 to eat. And overall, it's just so lush and so nice to eat um, and, and so nice to listen to. Uh, but the important part I wanted to add to it, add towards it, is just the amount of uh again the amount of roots it lays down and the amount of roots it pay, pays homage to um in the UK especially black music landscape um there are a lot of artists that have pioneered you know and have uh, made name for themselves off of whatever came whatever came to pass at the time the uk is a very fascinating place overall because um even the even the not to get too sociological about it but you know the term of what even britishness is right um can can go down so many different colonialism um and <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that. Yeah, uh, I wasn't going to go that far down, but yeah, uh, that's that's where it, that's where it, that's where it comes out of. Um, but out of that, obviously, came you know Windrush Generation, and with that, brought the likes of reggae, um, and these other forms. Uh, jungle came out of that. Grime came out of that. Um, obviously, there was house music in Europe. And and EDM in general in Europe, so that eventually came here as well. Um, probably new wave as well, probably. <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of flavors came down here, and they were all imported. That's the important thing to know. Obviously, you know, we, as you mentioned, the Beatles, right? Imported. They imported their sound. It's not a British sound. They just they just popped off because they had a de- they had a good sound. Yeah, they they. they yeah, they, they, yeah, that's what, that's what they just, they just got, they just got, um, they got hot. Same with the Stones, um, same with a lot of uh, British invasion artists. Um, it was all import, like their art was import, and they molded it into 
what is now uniquely them. And it's the same for black artists as well. Um, when it comes to something like Soul to Soul, where there's so many members, the main members, obviously Jazzy B, still doing shows these days, um, still still touring and stuff like that. Um, you get a Soul to Soul show now and again. I, ca- I catch some, but um, I still haven't catched them live yet, which I desperately want to do. Um, but, you know, Jazzy B still still doing things, still DJing, still blasting tunes. So, you know, big up to him. But um, if you look up the Soul to Soul group as a, as a whole, there's so many members. It's just, it's hard to keep track. And I don't want to go into that because for one thing, I don't know um, how, how what who, what credit to give people, right? Because um, again, there's a lot of people in, in the mix and over the years. Um, but you know, uh, gassing up obviously Karen Wheeler and um, and Jazzy B um, and Trevor Bez- uh, Beres- Beresford's uh, well, Jazzy B. Sorry, I'm being stupid. That's his name. <laughs> so yeah, him and Karen Wheeler, um, more specifically, them to uh, kind of make this album what it is on the face. Um, there are obviously other people here, um, but when you listen to this, um, it feels like a time capsule. It feels like a distillation of what was of what was heat back then and you know i mentioned i mentioned these uh, i mentioned this group when it came when we did the money love uh episode because you know money love had this had the similar source um when it came to her first album it, it sounds pretty much on par with something like this where you have a couple of dance tunes in there the only difference is that money love is rapping all over it um but yeah, it's just great to have something like Soul to Soul where it really, <laughs> and I don't want to put, um, I don't want to put the Coach Radical album uh, on the same pedestal, but it's kind of similar in that space where Coach Radical's album, most recent album, Reason to Smile, comes at a point where there are, again, a lot of flavors here. You can get some R&B, you can get some soul, you can get some hip hop, you can get some funk even on that album, right? And those things are here. Those things are here and they're flourishing. Um, and even back then in 1989, you get some flavors of, like I said, house, dance, EDM, whatever you want to call it, uh, reggae, uh, and, uh, and hip hop. You get all of that here. Um, so yeah, historically it's just such a fascinating, uh, fascinating time capsule of an album and it still goes, it still fucking goes, uh, to this day for me personally. Um, but yeah, man, just uh, it's it's great. Yeah, yeah, man, it's a, it's a brilliant fucking album. And there's a few things that are very fascinating about this album. I mean, it was a certified hit out of the gate. This is a debut album, remember? Uh, UK and worldwide, it went number one in the UK, number fourteen on the Billboard 200, number seven in Canada, eight in New Zealand. This was at 1989. Remember, this is not 1999. So the original group was a sound system, which is a term to collectively mean a bunch of DJs and audio engineers working together at parties to create dance music. Now the group began a regular residence at the Africa Center on King Street in Covent Garden, and from this is this is where they grew from. Uh, they would eventually move to the fridge in Brixton during the late 80s and all the way into the mid-90s. And Brixton was obviously the genesis of some of the greatest electronic music in history. Trip-hop, you know, uh, the whole 12-inch, like, two-track EP movement uh, in, the, in, in Brixton, Manchester around this time. We've got legendary acts coming out. We've got Glitch Electronica coming out of that. Just brilliant music. 
They had a brief direct exposure to the zeitgeist of American hip hop. In 1988, NWA actually appeared at their residence to promote Straight Outta Compton, which is very cool, I didn't know that. Now on top of this, the collective had their own ties to pirate radio. Jazzy B was hosting a show on Kiss FM. I say all that to say, they cut their teeth on live performance and this shines through in the album, you know. They were hardly industry sweethearts though, that's what I also wanna say, you know, when, when you see a debut album blowing up like this, you probably think to, for the first thing like, oh, some industry person's got hold of them and they've done like a really great marketing campaign. That's 2022 thinking. You know, if we go back into the, you know, the 80s and the 90s, we've talked about Jurassic Five, for example, blowing up in Europe. We've talked about, um, uh, what was it? Why am I blanking on the name of the group that Dilla and then they brought in the Slum Sorry. Village. They blew up in Asia, right? And, you know, it was just random. They didn't know they were blowing up in Asia. No label tried to push them in in Asia. It's just that the music made it there and people connected to it. And that's exactly what happened with Soul to Soul. You know, they they weren't, like, plucked from obscurity by some, you know, ruthless record executive and then just, like, pimped out to the, the highest bidder. That's not what happened at all with these people. Like, this was an incredible group that was putting on brilliant live performances they worked tirelessly to build up this following, and by the time their debut album dropped, they'd already released Fair Play and Feel Free, both which charted on the UK singles chart, both in the 60s. Uh, they both, I think, 63 and 64 on the UK singles chart. That came out the year prior to their album. But that was not enough for the album to come out. It wasn't until Keep On Moving released March 1989, number one on the US dance charts, as well as the hip hop slash R&B chart in the US, number five on the UK singles chart, all genres, global hit charted in 13 countries then the album came out and it fucking exploded man four million copies worldwide number one in the uk number eight in new zealand and sweden we're number eight in sweden number 11 in austria 12 in switzerland 13 in germany it was a certified hit and the way that they blended genres was invigorating for a uk dance and electro scene that was expanding rapidly in the late 80s and they contributed heavily to that maybe more so than most other people you know, Massive Attack, for example, the pioneering UK trip-hop band, made their very first appearance on Feeling Free, which is very fucking cool, man. And that's the enduring legacy of this album, I think, is that they managed to bring all these genres together and it never felt forced, you know, the way that, like, it, it's kind of ironic that we're talking about this album and Auto American by Blondie, where they did pretty much the same thing, but everything felt forced and wrote and, like that they were copying off someone else's notes and handing it in as their own work. Whereas Soul to Soul, it just, every song feels organic. And I think it really highlighted what a lot of people didn't understand about UK rap, for example, at the time. If we're going to talk about UK hip hop, you know, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of dance tracks, a lot of Euro dance tracks. You know, they, they talked about with Soul to Soul, they talked about them bridging the gap between the UK and Ibiza saying that like that was they were bringing that energy that fun energy into fucking clubs in Brixton you know that's crazy that's incredible that's super fucking adept and yeah man this album is 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 amazing it's just it's just fun it's just a really fun album it's really well done and uh yeah man just put on and just chill the fuck out to it vibe to it dance to it it's a great album it's very very influential very influential you know I I don't know that someone like DJ Shadow has ever said that he was influenced by that, but I, I see something like that, and I see trip hop coming out of that being very important as well, as long as a lot of other genres as well, man. This is this is a great record. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, and 
it kind of uh, I think is attested also to uh, just you know just listening, man. Like, you know, I mean, just like having the having the ear to uh, absorb these style these other styles and uh, managing to find a way to blend them. You know, we give you know the likes of Catronada such gas because of that. Um, because he's done the homework and has listened to the he's listened to the songs and the music that he can take this particular element and then throw it in with this particular element from somewhere else and it works right that's what i believe you know a lot of uh when when dj's become producers that's kind of the that's kind of the secret ingredient to how good they are you know when they when they just have this knack for finding greatness in other form other art forms that or other genres that they've may not even like right the, i i can't i can't imagine right watching someone like Dilla, for example you mentioned him right i can't imagine him i don't know listening to some something from uh i don't know something from mexico or something like that right just some random record from mexico that he found Dig, doing digging to spun it trying to find some breaks whatever um you know i can't imagine he liked everything he spun you know what i mean you, you, you just can't you can't like everything but it's that it's that wherewithal to listen to something and have that uh and have that outlying purpose past actually liking it or not just to find that tool of like hmm that was good what was that oh that was good yeah let me look up on that uh and not even just like from a sampling perspective i just mean you know maybe instrumentation um there's a there's an account i follow called dusted digital and <laughs> i don't know how to explain them but they just do this is really cool just packet they just they just have these deep knowledge of like packages of videos from all over the world of people just playing music or making music and um you just get some really good shit. Like I saw, I, I shared one where like this, there was this like eleven year old girl from I think Colombia just barring on a on a train. Um, there was like uh, some monks playing some, doing some music. There was like these uh, women from I don't know Kyrgyzstan or some one of those places, right? And they were just like dancing in the circle, making music, making music with their voices. That universality is so fascinating, right? And obviously that's a bit broad to bring it back to now. And bring it back to something like Soul to Soul, you know, they didn't go that far out, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that they, they went to, you know, the furthest deep, the furthest depths of Sri Lanka to find some music, but um, or to find some inspiration. But they they took what they took what they were given. In that case, they had what they had the UK landscape at that point, and they mashed it up together to make a true classic and a real seminal album in in my mind uk music history and not just um and not just you know uk black music history literally just music history you have to talk about this album you do, you do when chronicling that kind of shit um so yeah man <clears throat> shout out to jazzy b and the whole crew uh wherever they may be um yeah just uh, just bang just fucking bang around fucking bang ah <sighs> let's end it there um and uh hop onto a light note if you haven't no not really today not really so I watched Avatar two, oh, yeah. um, and I was one of those. I'm one of those people that 
enjoyed the first one. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people, just, even even if you were one of the millions of people that watched it, and you definitely did, all right? Stop acting like you didn't. Um, a lot of people act like, you know, too cool for school for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Avatar 1. <laughs> yeah, all right. A bit soppy, wasn't it? It's like, yeah, all right. Yeah, okay. It was good. It's a good film. Like, you know, it's very, is it basic from a storyline perspective? Yeah. It's, but you know what block what blockbuster isn't? What blockbuster can you name, guys? That is <laughs> from a narration, from a from a narrative standpoint, from a story a script storytelling standpoint that is just groundbreaking to you. None of them are, because that's the point of blockbusters. You know what I mean? It's all showy, right? But while I say all that, um, while Avatar Two kind of suffers from similar things where they just have some hammy ass dialogue, some just overly you know just fake deep dialogue a lot of the time um get past that and fuck bro oh this is what blockbusters should be bro they really should they should take years i'm being honest they should take years they should take time um they should have they should have deep world building which you know some of them do and you know who i'm you know who i'm talking about here obviously um all these superhero films right um but it's just something different about when it comes to Avatar for me. Um, while, you know, the storyline isn't the hardest ever, right? Uh, it's pretty basic. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's a 12A film, bro. It's, it's for families as well. You know what I mean? It's, it's people, even though, you know, spoiler alert, a dude's arm got chopped off. I was, I was like, oh, that's not very 12A of you. Well, fucking hell. Um, that kind of surprised me. But yeah, past that, it's 12A, bro. It's, it's, it's for families. It's for fams. Um, so, you know, I'm not expecting it to be ultra deep um but even with that said you can grab some context out of it you can grab uh the fact that they went from the forest to the water and all the conversation around marine marine life now um i'm sure i don't know how often you you get like news about the great barrier reef but every time i hear about it it's just bad <laughs> it's just it's just negative um and, uh, you know, we, 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 we watch the David Attenborough documentaries, you know what I mean? We, we're aware of this shit, right? And Avatar does a great job in that, in evoking that context, in evoking uh, imperialism, <laughs> in evoking uh, America going to another place um, just, for, just for a particular thing, uh, which is uh, an extra wrinkle added into this film. Um, you know, uh, whale populations and yeah, marine biology in general, right? And uh, and indigenous peoples as well. Um, they, there's, there's a big context to that. You can go for all of that if you want. You can dig right into the weeds if you really want to. Um, but if you don't want to, that's fine too because it's fucking great to look at. Oh my gosh, it is so good to look at. So fucking good to look at. And without and with all these films and with all these blockbusters that are dropping, that are so so they're done way too fast way too fast from a vfx standpoint the fact that one of the actors was like 12 when he started and is now 18 crazy like that that's the shit i'm looking for that's the shit i'm looking for that time put in uh to to, to in the craft and say what you want about avatar uh from the narrative standpoint how corny it can be maybe for you it is fucking good to look at, and it's how blockbuster should be in my mind. Like it shouldn't, this shouldn't be a conveyor belt. It really shouldn't. This game should not be a conveyor belt. 
this is some artistic shit and it leaves me it leaves me in awe watching it. It really does. Is it too long? Probably. Um but past that man, it's a fucking good film. It's a fucking good film to watch in the cinema. Okay, this is not indie film. Alright, you can watch that shit on the TV if you want, but it's not going to be the same. I I actually watched it in 3D because, um, well, it was just there in 3D. Um, I kind of want to watch it again in 2D just to see if there's any, you know, because I'm I'm not the, I'm not the biggest fan of 3D, but it was cool. It was it was it fulfilled the purpose. But you don't see you know these Marvel films doing 3D because even in 2D, sometimes the VFX looks in it's looking a bit booky. You know what I mean? So. Uh, yeah, man. I just I, I I appreciate James Cameron and and the squad for just I mean for the fact that he's given the keys. It's you know what I mean. It, it reminds me of um, it reminds me of Black Eyed Peas actually in some way where they were given the keys and they just didn't t- they just chat all over their own sh- their own work. James Cameron's given keys and he's just like, let me spend twelve years doing this, and they're like, okay. <laughs> And that's just, and, and you know, not every not every artist is gonna have that time. Not every artist is gonna be given the 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 uh, the credit that James Cameron has gathered over the past you know decades, from Terminator to Alien onwards, to Titanic onwards. He's just got super. Uh, he's got elite status credit, right? As a filmmaker, not everybody, not every artist is gonna receive that. Um, but the fact that he does it and doesn't take it for granted. Big respect, big respect, because there are plenty that would not do that. Um, that would not treat it, uh, treat their power lightly, um, and be laissez-faire with it. But he takes it seriously, and he takes his, um, he takes his work seriously. And I, and you can see it. You can see the tender, loving care on the film, um, and that's a dub. Um, fun fact: all the actors had to learn deep sea diving. Fuck that. <laughs> Fuck that. That's crazy. But it comes out so good on the film. It really does. Highly recommend. Um, if you want to watch an actual blockbuster that actually leaves you in awe what blockbusters are supposed to do, because I don't remember the last time. I mean, I say that. the last Only three things this year has actually left me just like jaw dropped. It was like this, um, everything everywhere all at once, and uh, as a TV show, The Lazarus Project. If I get one of those kind of pieces, texts a year, I'm happy. I got three this year, so um, dub for me. Um, but I still wanna, I still wanna try and watch more films and TV shows next year because um, <laughs> I've just put, I've, I've put a lot of time into music this year, <laughs> and it's really been at the detriment of me watching like TV shows. Like I've, I have so many recordings just sitting, waiting to be watched, and uh, I want to get back into those. But um, yeah, that's that's more for the bites next next uh, next time. So yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I'm gonna watch it because I haven't. Uh, I saw Avatar. Go and watch I it, mate. Saw Avatar one a long time ago. I only saw it once. Yeah, I remember, bro. I remember watching it. I watched it in my post with my sister, and I, I enjoyed the fuck out of it. I actually remember watching it, and that's what it's supposed to do, right? <clears throat> I barely remember some. I barely remember like you know watching some films right in the cinema, but I'm remembered this shit, and I remember Avatar one, and that's, that's what it's good, supposed man. to do. I'm gonna check it out. I'm gonna check it out. How much do um, how much do cinema tickets cost you? Mm, about thirty bucks. About fifteen pounds. Five. Fifteen twenty oh, yeah. pounds. Okay, it was about twenty. It's about, it's about it's very expensive. Yeah. To I, 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 I paid. Um, it's crazy. 
Yeah, it's, it's getting up there, man. Like, the cost of living is fucking me up. Like, it's starting to feel like a real privilege. You now. know what's crazy? Because <laughs> you Christ. said Kyr- Kyrgyzstan. I googled Kyrgyzstan to just to read about it. And apparently, you can go skiing. You can go skiing in Kyrgyzstan for 17 US dollars a day. So, to ski in Kyrgyzstan is like significantly cheaper than seeing a single movie in Australia. Might go on That's a in dub. Kyrgyzstan. I wonder what language. I want to snowboard one day, but I just. I don't like cold. <laughs> I just, I just, I love, I love snowboarding. I love watching snowboarding. I love playing the games. I watch, I played SSX all the time back in the day, but I, I, I just can't. I mean, I don't have the finances to bring myself to actually get gear and stuff like that. But um, snowboarding yeah, is not as yeah, fun as it looks in the game, cold, bro. bro. Like when you, when you, it is no? if you're good. Yeah, but like it? you know, I've been, <laughs> I've been skiing since I was three, so. And I've snowboarded a single day in my... I snowboarded one day. I was in New Zealand and my friend was learning. So I was like, fuck it, I'll get on a board with you. Horrible day. Horrible day. Just kept falling on my ass, like banging my knees up. Like I'm on a... You know, because you, when you're skiing, you get on the ski lift, right? Like you're on the, the, the T-bar or the Pommer or the... I'm on this little magic carpet, this fucking thing that you sit on, that you stand on and it holds you and it just goes up the mountain like... I'm sitting on this magic carpet looking at all the lifts and like I can't access the mountain because I'm too shit. It's, I've never experienced that because ever since I was three, I could fucking <laughs> ski and do tricks and all crazy shit. But yeah, man, if you want to snowboard, you got to commit, I reckon, three days it takes before you're good enough to like enjoy yourself. Those first three days are going to suck, 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 suck. Hey, man, as learning, as learning curves go, that's probably not the worst ever. It probably t- it'll probably take me longer to learn how to play FIFA now. <laughs> oh, I play FIFA every day. I'm fucking lit at FIFA. I could teach you FIFA, bro. I, yeah, but, but I've, I ain't played properly since like twelve. <laughs> like the learning curve is different. I played the de- I think I played like the twenty three demo or the twenty two demo last year uh, at my mate's house, and I literally couldn't shoot. I was like, why is this so hard to shoot? No, why is it so complicated? I'm, I'm playing an um, ultimate so yeah, the, right now. Yeah, that learning curve was crazy. Yeah, I got it at the highest like, setting. Nope, can't be asked. Shit is... It took me a while. I hadn't played... I, I think I played FIFA 20, and I hadn't played since like 08 or something. And it took a while. It right. took a while, but it's exactly. taken three years. But now I'm, I'm beating the computer on, on <laughs> ultimate with competition mode on, so... Oh. Right. You got to you got to devote yeah, your time to yeah, something, yeah. right? And I decided to devote my time to being good at FIFA. Completely useless skill, yeah. but all of a sudden <laughs> it's become relevant randomly. So now everyone in the world knows that I'm a fucking FIFA whiz. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Get 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 go go. Show you show you gamer tag or your PS. No, well, this is a lot. I don't I don't play online because our uh, our internet's garbage in Australia. But this is the last FIFA game, by the way. There's no more Fifas after this. I don't know what's going to happen, but yeah, FIFA is, 23 yeah. is the final FIFA. FIFA. Well, like the World Cup, I don't care, ladies and gentlemen. Find the Fifth End Podcast Network. This has been Digging Digits. I've enjoyed this episode. I'm Charles Sosa for Fenner. I've been Ben Carter for Pop. The ICD Bites uh, review of 2022. Um, I'm gonna throw some. I'm gonna throw some flames. I don't know what Ben's gonna talk about, but we're gonna be talking review of the year overall. Uh, musically, personally, all of that, all of that, all of that. And uh, yeah, until then, hope you all have a good week. If you're trying to say, until next time, take it easy. Here's a job. All right, peace.
Vegan in Digits is produced by me and Ben Carter. The show is edited by me, music for the shows, Pizza Media Games, Bar Bonus Points, Thanks to Chill Music, Pretty Bit Easy Use. Socials for the Fifth Element Hip Hop by Numbers, Bonus Points, and Chill Hop Music will be in the full show notes as well as next project review wherever you're listening. This has been a Fifth Element Podcast over production. Thanks for spending time with us. We'll see you next time. I'm digging in the digits.